pastors here, and I'm so thankful for the ability to be here. Also thankful for uh, the fact that I got back from Ecuador, and once a year I and maybe a small team have the ability to go and I get to teach uh, theological education to Ecuadorian men and women, um, some male pastors and elders, but also lay leaders, men and women. And there's just a void of theological education in Ecuador. And so with our partners, Steve and Sandy Yongren and Claudio, um, we are just pursuing helping develop healthy church leaders in the nation of Ecuador. And so I get to play a role in that as as a teacher. But you guys get to play a role in that through an annual trip that will be, we got postponed this year, but there's going to be more information coming soon about that. So we'd love to give you the chance and encourage you towards a cross-cultural experience for the sake of your development, for the sake of you having a heart that beats after God's heart for the nations, for you getting to see that Madison, Wisconsin is not the only game in town. And there's a lot of other towns with a lot of other games going on. Um, if you'll endure the metaphor, uh, throughout the whole world, so good for you to get just our eyes off ourselves and just see what God is doing globally. It's so good for us. So um, James Garcia will be in touch in the future about he's our uh, Ecuadorian. He's not Ecuadorian. He is our uh, deacon over Ecuador stuff at the Vine and he'll be in communication about another church-wide trip in the coming months. So we encourage you towards that. We are in a series in the book of Exodus, and within the book of Exodus, a mini-series in the Ten Commandments. And so today, if you have a Bible, let's open up to Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. Exodus 20, verse 15. And typically, we uh, go verse by verse through a text, and we like to do what's called exegetical preaching, expository preaching, where we expose what is in the text, and we look at the words, and we see how they fit together. This Sunday is kind of easy, because there's only four words in the verse. And so this could be a short sermon. But we're going to try to go a little deeper than, than uh, what's simply here, um, into the heart of what's here Exodus 20, 15 says, you shall not steal. You shall not steal. So knock it off if you're stealing, and we can just go home. Actually, no. We're going to spend some time thinking about this. It's more profound than just the outward, am I obeying or am I not? And we're going to think about that this morning, okay? But what I want us to do is, is not think about ourselves first. I don't want us to start with ourselves. I want us to start with God. And one of the things that we can say about God very definitively is that our God is a giver and not a taker. Our God is a giver and not a taker. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means this. Philippians 2, starting in verse 3, has an amazing vision of this God that we worship. And it starts with a command, but then it goes into why we would do this command, the foundation is God himself. So the command for us is this, and then let's look at the foundation. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. All right, so that's what we're supposed to do. And here's why. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God 
a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What does that say to you? What does that say to you if you were to summarize it? I think we could say that our God is unbelievably generous, exceedingly generous. He poured himself out, being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Our God is a giver. He's not a taker. He didn't do that to take from us, right? He did all of that to give to us. That's That's another way of just saying the gospel, the good news. Our God is a giver. He gives of himself in order to save us. Our God is a giver, not a taker. But but think about this text and how opposite it is to our kind of knee-jerk responses to power that, that we have or that we operate in. See, when we think about power... Like the God of the universe has all the power in the whole world. If I have power, what what do I do with it? Man, my knee jerk sometimes is to benefit myself. Just think about myself. If I'm honest, that's where my, my mind goes if I'm not thinking biblically. But how amazing is it that the God of the universe, all power, unsurpassing, infinite, glorious, majestic in all power and glory, that he would behave in a Philippians 2 type way towards us. Isn't that amazing? That those that oppose him, those that reject him, those that do not listen and go the opposite way from him, that, I mean, think about how, how you treat people when they treat you that way, right? But Philippians 2 says that that's not how God treats us, right? If God were like us, he would reject us, pour out his wrath on us immediately, maybe revenge on us immediately. But thankfully, God doesn't stand up immediately for his rights. He doesn't immediately bring his wrath. He doesn't stomp off in rejection of us. What does he do? The Bible says he gives of himself. He's a giver, not a taker. He's willing to release what is rightfully his in order to be a giver to others. See, there's a profound other-centeredness in God being who he is, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Is that not clear in Philippians 2? Just think about it. The God of the universe, the most powerful being in all the universe, desires to glorify himself by giving of himself to save. So what does that have to do with Exodus 20:15? This vision of who God is as a giver and not a taker. Because the point of our text today is just don't be someone who steals, right? Well, this is what this has to do with our text. Stealing is taking something that's not yours to take, right? Be a simple definition. Stealing is taking something that's not yours to take. And since God does not treat us this way, In light of his selflessness, we can't be takers either. See, if you are in Christ, meaning if you are a Christian, if you've trusted and and treasured what Jesus has done in history 2,000 years ago to, to, to bring about 
salvation for people, then you will become a giver and not a taker. Now, it might take some time, and that's okay. We, growth is a process. But our orientation from day one, if you sit at the foot of the cross in a tomb that is empty, as our only point of orientation, then what do you see? Well, one of the things you have to see is that God is a giver. God is a giver. That's our reference point. That's what we stare at, Right? And in light of that, then we, the more we behold it, the more we gaze upon it, the, you know, you become what you behold, right? And so the more you behold the cross and the empty tomb and you see, man, God is a giver. God demonstrates his love for me in that he's a giver. Then we become like that as well. So seeing in this light, then stealing, taking something that's not mine would be abhorrent, Right? So let's, let's think about so the heart of stealing. What's underneath a, a, a desire for theft? What's underneath a desire to take something that's not mine? What's at the heart of stealing? What's underneath the act of stealing? What would be my motivation? Well, there might be many motivations of the heart that would manifest in stealing. One of them might be this, just straight up like a, a lack of trust in God's promise to provide. You think about that? So we saw this in the command number four, the, the, the Sabbath command. So if I believe that God will not provide, then what does that mean for me? I better get to work. Because if I'm not working, I might be starving, right? But if God is my provider, and I truly know that, and I truly believe that, then what? Then I'm free to take a nap now and then. I'm free to not be a nervous wreck if I don't work one day a week. Why? Because God commanded it, and he said, here's the reason why. Because I'm your provider. You don't provide for yourself. You might feel like you do, but ultimately you don't. And so you're free to relax. You're free to enjoy creation. You're free to take a nap. Because you don't provide for yourself. But if you believe that you do, ultimately, then you better get to work. And Sabbath, forget that. I got to get mine, right? Well, the same way with stealing. If I believe that God is holding out on me and my life is all up to me and that God is not ultimately my provider, then I'm going to do what it takes to get mine if I feel there's a lack, right? If God won't provide for me, then I have to do what it takes to provide for me. If I want something so bad and I don't believe that God knows what is best for me as my provider, and he's somehow holding out on me, then you can see how you would maybe lean in the direction of stealing or theft or take something that's not yours. So that might be underneath there. Who is God and who is he in reference to me? Does he provide or not? But maybe let's try to go another step deeper. Just as we reflect on the heart. It's not just about Outward behaviors. Like if you read anything in the Gospels, you see Jesus lighting up religious leaders when they're just all about outward appearances, all about outward behaviors. Yeah, I don't steal. But what's all going on in your heart is the question. So let's think about the heart. If we want something so bad that I might be willing to even entertain the thoughts of stealing, what does that say about my heart? It probably says down there somewhere, I got an idolatry problem. 
And it's not that desires are bad, but it's the strength of those desires, of those unchecked desires that gets us in trouble. So, so if you feel like that desire is boiling over into the surface of your life or tempted to boil over on the surface of your life, you might want to stop yourself and just simply train yourself to preach to yourself more than you listen to yourself. Just with questions. Like, you could ask the Lord to reveal, like, like um, Lord, see if there's any wicked way in me. What is going on, Lord, in my heart right now? Why do I want this thing so badly that I'm willing to steal to get it? What's going on there? Why, why do I want this thing so badly? What does that say about my trust of you and in my heart. What am I believing about God right now? Do I believe that he will fail me? What am I believing about this thing that I want so bad? Do I believe that this thing can deliver happiness to me in in the ways God can't? How is this thing that I think I want going to serve me? What am I believing it can do for me that God can't or maybe I believe won't do for me? I mean, all of those questions are great questions to discern. What's going on in my heart right now? I'm feeling this impulse toward this behavior that I know is sinful, but I find that I want it. Why do I want it? Why do I want it so bad? See, this is the first lie. The beginning of all created, known time and space. This is the first lie, Genesis chapter 3. Essentially, Satan comes to Adam and Eve and basically says, you know what? God's a liar. And he's not a provider. And he's holding out on you. He's actually, he's threatened by you. So what you got to do is you got to get what you can right now. He said you can't have this, but he's just, he just doesn't want you to be as powerful as him. And he knows if you have this, which he said no to, then you're going to become powerful like him. And he doesn't want that. And he's threatened by your potential power. And he wants to just be the man. And he doesn't want any competition. So you know what? Power is better than trusting God. Go get that fruit. Who cares what God said? I mean, can you really trust what he said? Desire it and take it. I mean, that's what Satan said. That's the first lie. And then what happened? There was a theft. Adam and Eve took what was not rightfully theirs. They took what was not rightfully theirs to take. They saw something that looked good, even though God said they were not to steal. They desired it more than they desired God and his will for them. And what happened? Everything got so messed up from then on. And we would have done the same thing had we been there. But you see how stealing is essentially a lack of trust or faith in God's provision? So seen in this light, stealing is just essentially a failure to believe God's promises. A failure to trust by faith in what God has said. A failure to listen with ears to hear and act upon it. Right? Another way to look at it is stealing is just valuing something higher than God and believing that you need to do whatever it takes to have that thing that you think will make you happier than God can. So seen in this light, stealing is just worshiping a false god. 
Whatever it is you think that you need, I have to have in order to be happy. So this is the heart behind the impulse to take something that's not yours, to steal. But let's go even deeper. I think there's even deeper levels for us. And here's what I mean by that. A lot of us, when I preached, I think it was two weeks ago, on murder. Thou shall not murder, right? You shall not murder, verse 13. Most of us listen to that command and we're like, you know what? I'm good. I'm batting a thousand. Like I haven't killed anybody recently, right? Now, that's not always true, but I think I look around our church and I go, I think that's true for the most part, right? It's not true in every place in the world in the Christian church, so we shouldn't be superior in any sense. Um, But a lot of us look at this and go, you know what? I just don't have a shoplifting problem, so I think I'm good, right? Like, check. Now, some of you might have a shoplifting problem. Some of you used to in the past, or maybe some of you will in the future. Maybe it's not shoplifting. Maybe it's some other form of stealing. Maybe it's just fudging your taxes. And it's just like, eh, government, whatever. They're going to waste my money, so why do they need to have it? I've had those thoughts. Or maybe it's a just kind of a business deal that's not perfectly clear, but it just feels eh, a little shady, but let's just go with it. Bending the rules in some way, maybe to gain an advantage financially over someone. I don't know. What is it? There's probably a lot of creative ways to, to go about stealing. There are many ways to be a taker, not a giver. But for all of us here who might not feel like 2015 of Exodus doesn't really apply, let's look at the New Testament. Just like we did a few weeks ago with murder, Jesus takes it a step deeper, and I think it's the same way here with with the command to not steal. Paul, in the the letter to the Ephesians, verse 4, he takes it a step deeper. He shines a, a different light on this command. Let's take a look. Look at what it says. This is Paul. Now keep in mind, this is Paul writing to an ancient church in the city of Ephesus, And this is a gathered group of believers, probably house churches. And this letter was written and they were to read the whole thing out loud and pass it around. And so this is Paul's heart for the purity of the ancient Ephesian church. Okay. So he's not writing to one person. He's writing to a group of people. He's he's got community orientation in mind here. So he says, let the thief no longer steal. So he's he's thinking there's maybe people that are stealing or have a past of stealing. In the church, okay? And in an ancient culture where poverty was much, much more common than maybe it is in Madison, Wisconsin, um, stealing was probably more of an issue. So he's assuming that they're in the church and he's saying, that can't, you can't steal, okay? So let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work, not dishonest work, but doing honest work with his own hands. Why? Well, here's why. Because he's got a higher point of orientation in mind. So that he might have something, here it is, to share with anyone in need. What's the first thing that jumps off the page for you there? I think the first thing I see that's really fascinating is the contrast. Do you see a contrast? There's a contrast between stealing And then the last line there, sharing. See that? 
stealing, and maybe we could say generosity. You see it? It's not enough to just stop stealing. No, no, no. We got to go on to something else. See, like stopping stealing might take you from negative 10 to a zero. All right, now I'm a neutral. My life is just neutral. I'm not stealing. But, but God calls us to have our faith look like something positive. So what does it look like? It looks like sharing. I'm not going to steal. I'm going to work. I'm going to have some money. I'm going to get that money honestly. And the reason why I'm going to have money is not so I can just be puffed up in pride with how awesome I am through all this money I have. No, it's so that I can be a giver. So I can share. So I can be generous, right? It's never enough just to stop bad behavior, but rather we want to enact God-glorifying in light of the gospel, I'm going to live this way kind of behavior, right? I'm going to be who I am and who God has called me to be. See, Christianity, this is really important for some of us. A lot of us think of Christianity as simply a list of things that we avoid, right? As if we turn to God and we say, God, look, I avoided all the right things. I didn't do drugs. I didn't have sex outside of marriage. And I never got drunk. Great. And it's never less than that, but it's just so much more than that. It's good to not do those things. Yeah, that's God's heart. But it's so much more. It's not just avoiding things. Right? You can sit in your room all day long and avoid a lot of things and do zero for the kingdom of God. And that's not God's heart for you. You're not going to find any joy in that. God didn't wire you up to sit in your room all, all day and avoid certain things. God wired you up to be in the world to be a blessing. He called the church to come together to be a city on a hill, to be a light to the nations, to be the light of the world. We don't do that by sitting in our room all, all day just avoiding things, Right? The question is not what did you avoid, but what did you do? See, James says faith without works is what? It's dead. So not stealing and just gaining some money so that you can spend it all on yourself, that probably is deadness. Just because you didn't steal doesn't mean anything. But what did you do with the money that you had? Paul's just saying you can't just stop certain behaviors. You have to add certain behaviors that show that you have trusted and treasured Jesus in the gospel. So if we want to go to war with just even the impulse to steal or even the impulse to just bow down and worship my stuff such that I'm never going to be generous, if you want to go to a war with an idolatrous heart that wants to take and not give— or cling to things so tightly and never relinquish anything for the kingdom of God? It seems like from Ephesians 4, God's calling us to lean in the direction of generosity. If I want to combat the impulse to steal and all the heart issues that flow underneath that, it sounds like Paul is saying on the authority of of God himself that we got to lean in the direction of sharing and generosity So so how do we do that? Well, we start again with God. When my feet hit the floor every morning, I roll out of bed, I, I, I rehearse the truth of who I am to myself. 
I preach the gospel to myself that maybe I've seen in Philippians 2, like we just started. That my God poured himself out for me to save me. That's so counterintuitive to the way I'm wired up. But that's, that's the good news of history. My God is so generous with me. Our God is so generous with us. And if he's a giver and he's recreating me into the image of his son, who is the highest giver of all, then that means what? That I'm a, I'm a giver too. That's who I am. I'm a giver just like him. That is my identity. This is who I am. I am who God says I am. I don't define myself any other way. And so today, I'm just going to be who I am because in Christ, I am a giver. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. Well, the Christ who's living in me by the power of the Spirit is a giver. So I am too. That's who I am. So I'm going to live today like it. I didn't achieve it. I didn't earn it. It's not all about my good works. Just credited to me as a gift. Christ is in me by the power of his spirit because I've treasured and tre- tre- trusted and treasured uh, what God has done in history. Amen? Since I am in him and he is in me, I'm going to be a giver. I could never be a taker because that's not who I am. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The opposite of stealing is generosity. The opposite of stealing is generosity. So this is how the rubber hits the road for our church. This is why all of our city groups have a mandate to engage with marginalized people in Madison. It's just the outflow of our identity. It's just us being who we are. You feel that? We're not givers. We're takers. I'm sorry. Gosh. We're not takers. We're givers. So we act like it. Right? There are people in this city in need and around the world. So since Jesus is a giver and we're followers of him, we're givers too, never takers. We're just going to live out our identity together as a church. And one way that we do that, there's a thousand creative ways to do that, but one way we do that is through our city groups. We're going to be who we are together. So, so maybe you don't have a shoplifting problem, but in the silent recesses of your heart, do you have a Ephesians 4.28 generosity problem? That might be a, a next step of growth for all of us to consider. Like, am I willing to engage in my city group serve time once every four weeks? Or do I kind of drag my feet because it's awkward and uh, I don't say and I'm not really sure I buy in and I just don't want to make any waves if I say anything and uh, I don't know what to do. That's not who you are if you're in Christ. Who you are is someone who loves to show up and serve. And if you don't, then you just ask God to change your heart. You repent, you pray, you confess. And then we act by faith. When, when the call goes out to maybe step up our game in terms of giving to the church, how does my heart respond to that? When, when my neighbor is in need, what's my first impulse? So let, let's pause and just reflect right there. Maybe Exodus twenty fifteen is like, yep, check the box. But maybe there's deeper heart work to do based on Ephesians 4.28. Some of you are doing a great job at being generous. 
And there's certainly a desiring to repent when you fail. And this is how God changes us over time. Some of us are still clinging too tightly. And it's not stealing, but it's not generosity that God desires to see in his people. But the tricky part comes here. Like, what exactly is generosity? Right? And I say this all the time. There's there's no math equation for you to know. I mean, you just have to get with your Bible. And if you're married with your spouse or maybe with a trusted friend if you're single. And just say, here's what I'm thinking. What do you think about this? Does this sound generous to you? I mean, Old Testament people were commanded to give 10%, and they didn't even know the gospel like we know it. And if we know everything that we know now, and that our God is such an amazing giver, and, he, and our God didn't even, like, write a check. No, he wrote a check with his own life. He gave of himself in the highest possible way, deeper than finances, but his whole body, mind, soul to us. How much more should we live in light of this great Savior that we say we love through how we give and, and lean in the direction of generosity. So there's no, there's no magic formula, but if you understand the gospel and you really get it, and you understand that God calls us to be sacrificial like he's sacrificial, right? That's what the cross is. It's a sacrifice, giving up something for the sake of somebody else. Then... Man, like when you look at your giving statement at the end of the tax year, that should represent a sacrifice. Does that make sense? Like it should look like, wow, that's a lot of money. And, and if that, I, I could have spent that money on something else that would have been really cool to have. But I sacrificed that thing that would have been really cool to have for the sake of something better. So I'll just, I'll just share as honest as I can from our family. Like I look at our giving at the end of the year and I go, Man, like, I could take my family to Europe every single year, all six of us, for a couple weeks. And that would be awesome. That would be really fun. That would be really, really cool. But you know what's more cool? What God is doing at this church. And I really believe that. So it sort of feels like a sacrifice, but on the other hand, it's kind of a joy. Like, man, I believe in what we're doing here. I'd love to take my family to Europe for two weeks every year, but this is better. I really believe that. That's what you should be thinking. That's how maybe one way for you to think about generosity in an Ephesians 4.28 kind of way. Let me remind you of the gospel. As I was thinking about that this week, I was reminded that when Jesus laid down his life for us, 2,000 years ago in the Middle East in actual space-time and history as a historical fact. He wasn't alone on that day. And on that day, he was crucified between two other men on his right and on his left. And the Bible says, what about those guys? They were thieves. They stole. They took things that were not theirs to take. And one of those men recognized Jesus as unique. And, and he saw that, that Jesus was being treated as they were, but something more was going on. And he recognized that Jesus was not a thief like them, but rather was a king who was reigning from a bloody, violent cross, being treated as they deserved, but not as he deserved. 
This thief perceived that something was going on here that was profound, even if he didn't understand all the details. Right? The thief turns to Jesus and in trusting faith says to him, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today, this very day, you will be with me in paradise. What do we learn here about the good news that we say that we orbit around and that we trust? What we learn is that anybody, even at like the last hour, like literally at 11 or the last minute, 11.59 before midnight, that's what this guy was. His, his, his life was about to be snuffed out. He turns to Jesus in trusting faith and doesn't even know everything about Jesus. He just says, I can see something unique is in you and, and whatever it is, I trust it. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. I can see there's a kingdom coming for you. Isn't that amazing that when we turn to Jesus in trusting faith and simply ask for mercy, there's grace for takers who have failed to be givers. That's the good news. That's the reason to rejoice this morning. None of us have been givers as we should be. None of us. Maybe you don't have a shoplifting problem, but none of us have been, Ephesians 4, 28, generous like we should be. And we can turn to Jesus right now and say, Lord, remember me. I'm in need of mercy. And he looks to you and he says, I'm willing to give it because I'm a giver, not a taker. There's mercy for those who don't deserve it. Our God is most glorified as a giver. Do you understand that? He doesn't come to us to receive from us as if we could give anything to him. No, he comes to us as the giver because the giver gets the glory. He has all the resources and we have all the needs. What could we possibly give to God as if he had any needs? But when we know how needy we are and we see him as not lacking in any resources, he gets the glory as the giver. As we just say, Lord, I got nothing, but you can fill me up if you're willing. And he says, I am. And then we glorify him in light of that joy that comes to us. Isn't it amazing that Jesus, reigning from a bloody, violent cross, continues to be a giver when everyone is taking from him? That's our God. That's the God that we worship. Isn't this amazing? Like, how much more should this realization, as it sinks into our hearts, transform us into being givers with him and being free to repent when we fail? Let's pray together. Father, we need your help, and we recognize that you are the giver, and we want to give you glory as the giver, and we thank you for this reality that we see in space, time, and history, in the gospel, and we see it because you're alive in our hearts with the power of your spirit. So may the world look to us and see something unique, that we are unique in the way that we are radically generous because of how generous you've been towards us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.